heart of Wellington, Kansas, Powder and String Outfitters is your down-home, one-stop shop for all things shooting sports and outdoors. Welcome to the Powder and String Podcast. I would like to welcome everybody back to the uh, Powder and String Outfitters podcast. I am your host, Kip Etter, and I am here in the uh, Powder and String studio in downtown Wellington, Kansas. And today I am uh, joined remotely by Mark Kaiser. And uh, Mark Kaiser, for those of you that don't know, he has uh, been in the um, full, full-blown, full-time in the outdoor hunting world. Uh, Mark, how many years? Uh, I've, been, I've been a full-time freelance guy for about uh, two, two and a half decades. So, so the, the better, bigger portion of my outdoor career has been freelance outdoor industry stuff. Yep. Writing, um, shooting uh, content as the, you know, the environment, I guess, has changed in, in this industry and, um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can, maybe we can touch base on, on, on that a little bit as we get, you know, get along here in the, uh, in the uh, podcast. But, um, for those of you that, um, are not joining us, uh, with YouTube and watching the video, um, behind Mark are some extremely nice specimens of, uh, some elk and, and there's, it looks like there's a, a mule deer and a whitetail. Um, so, um, Mark and I have never met personally, but we have a mutual friend, uh, Greg Gilman, and, uh, I greatly appreciate you coming on here, Mark, and we're going to see where this thing takes us. But, um, uh, if you, if you get a second to, to look up Mark Kaiser, it doesn't take long and you can kind of see uh, where he's gone, but Mark, do you want to maybe give the listeners out there a little bit of a, of a idea of your background and, and all that? Sure. And Kip, thanks for inviting me along. I, I really appreciate this. So uh, uh, all, all you have to do is go to markheiser.com and you will see all kinds of background information about me. And, uh, and uh, you'll see videos. You can go to YouTube, see some of my hunts, little tips on hunting and stuff I do. But I got started hunting kind of... Uh, different than a lot of people. My family, my dad didn't even really hunt. He, uh, he was a tractor salesman implement, uh, which worked good for me in the long run getting into hunting. Cause he knew every farmer in the County where I wanted to hunt. He could get me out by on but, but I actually kind of got into hunting, watching my grandfather and, and, following in his footsteps, even though he was, couldn't hike and do a whole lot of stuff anymore, but he was kind of my inspiration. But for the most part, I, I just launched into hunting on myself, just, you know, picking up a bow, picking up a rifle, picking up a shotgun and, and trying to do it my, uh, myself and on my own. But, um, I grew up in South Dakota and South Dakota, is a big hunting state and it was in the eastern part of the state where I actually started hunting and in the eastern part of the state had a lot of pheasants so pheasant hunting was my big deal my big kickoff 
but I still would look at some of my uh, grandfather's deer and elk mounts. He didn't have many, but he had a few, and that really inspired me. And so I, I wanted to get more into the big game hunting. And uh, believe it or not, most people uh, back in my day started out rifle hunting, firearm hunting for deer. My first uh, success was with a bow and arrow. I did do some rifle hunting, but just never got into the right position, right situation where I could get a deer. And uh, finally, I bought an old bear bow, <laughs> you know, bear archery, white tail to a bow. I bought it at a garage sale, bought some arrows, didn't know anything about it. And uh, first time out, first, or first season out, I, I killed a deer, my first deer ever with bow and arrow by myself. I was sitting out in a field, and this is kind of a, a interesting story, but, uh, you know, I did this all by myself, solo whatever there's a dead deer laying there and i had an old outdoor life book on how to become a deer hunter or, you know 10 things you don't need to know about deer hunting i can even remember the book and there was some pages in there on how to field dress a deer so i stuck a flashlight in my mouth had the book open laid right under the deer basically field dress the deer by myself and uh i was so amped up on adrenaline i was able to lift that deer now, given he was only a probably one and a half year old deer, but up onto the roof of my old international scout and drove into town like uh, I, w I was Tom Cruise going to a, a movie blockbuster opening. So uh, it was uh, it was really a great experience. And right there, it launched me into what you see behind me is just craziness in big game hunting. And I still and I do a lot of other hunting, but it's for me, it's it's antlers are the big the big thing that gets me. So, so, yeah. Do you remember what year that was? It was 1981. I was able to start hunting in 19, let's see, 79 or 80. I hunted a year or two with a rifle and just never had, we were hunting in the black Hills of South Dakota then for deer deer numbers weren't high. Uh, it was hard, pretty hard hunting. And then I picked up my bow, a bow, because I could hunt the cornfields of eastern South Dakota then. And that uh, opened up a few more deer hunting opportunities. I could hunt after school. You know, the Black Hills was six hours away from where I lived. Uh, so uh, 1981. Um, what part of South Dakota did you grow up in? Uh, if you're familiar with Sioux Falls in the southeast corner, I grew up about 20 miles from there in a small town called Del Rapids, which was a little agricultural town. It's grown a little bit now because it's kind of become a bedroom community of Sioux Falls. But back in the day, it was, I mean, it was just all uh, redneck hicks and cornfields. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, our mutual friend, Greg, um, and I have been up to uh, South Dakota. I think we went up twice um, up in uh, around Mitchell, um, Westington yep. Springs. Um, we got a friend that, uh, has a family that has a pheasant operation up there. And that's a, that was a good time. There's a good, good story there. Uh, I'll share it real quick, but you know, we went up there and, and, uh, actually this is a really good story. Um, and I, I don't know, I mean, I think we might've talked about this before, but the best, um, the absolute hands down best hunting dog I've ever hunted over was a cattle dog. And I mean, to tell you what, so the very first hunt that Greg and I, you know, big hunt, Greg and I had hunted together waterfowl and, 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 you know, 
as well as I do, how big of an outdoor guy this that, that Greg is. And he's a little bit older than me. And so, you know, I was just a college kid at this time. And so here's Greg and I going on this hunt and I had lined the whole thing out. And my, my buddy, and he knew, he knew Dustin, he said, uh, yeah, dad's got a new dog and he's really excited for it. He's been working with it real well. And, you know, so I'm telling Greg that, and we drive up there, you know, all the way from, from Manhattan. And we, you know, the first morning we, we get out and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, well, we are from South Dakota, so, you know, you don't hunt, um, shooting times at noon. So, you know, it's probably eight o'clock, eight thirty, and we, you know, show up at his dad's house and here comes this cattle dog. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what have I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, what in the world? Like I, I'm, you know, Greg and I had been friends probably for a couple of years, but I'm thinking, man, what's he thinking? Like I got himself, you know, that I got him into that dog pointed, retrieved, knew, and I kid you not, we, I've got witnesses, it knew colors, it knew directions. I mean, it was the most crazy thing in the whole world. Um, but on that hunt, we went, um, Greg's a pretty good shot with a shotgun and, um, I'm, I'm a decent shot and the group that we went with, you know, it was their hunting lodge. And so the group we went with, they were all, so to say, paying customers we paid, but not much. And because we were friends, you know, and after, you know, the first field, the, the, the guy running it said, Hey, you guys, you know, you need to let these other guys get some shooting in. And then after they've shot, then you guys can go ahead and so I don't know how many birds we shot. It was a bunch. Um, but one of the last fields we were hunting, the wind had picked up and it was cold and Greg and I were blocking and this rooster got up and went all the way across the firing line. And I mean, it was cooking. And I mean, you, you know, 60, 70 mile an hour, this bird is just moving and it's a pretty far shot. And Greg's like, you think I can hit that? And I'm like, there is no way in hell you're going to hit that bird. And I'll be damned. He hit that thing and he hit it and it <laughs> wadded up and ended up landing in the back of the truck that was parked over there and hit the inside of the bed. There was, there was nothing left of the bird. It was just, you know, it was doing 60, 70 mile an hour and just hit the back of that truck. And I mean, all those guys that we were hunting with, you know, they were all, you know, didn't hunt much and, you know, they, they were just impre as impressed as could be with the shooting that we had and our shooting skills, which, I mean, we're decent shots, but we're not, you know, by any means, you know, world-class, but boy, they thought that was just the coolest thing. And I don't know how many birds Greg, Greg shot, but it was a bunch. I can tell you that. So that's, uh, if you've never been to South Dakota hunting and, and I know that it, you know, in, in the, the years that you're talking about when you started, it was, the hunting was even better, but man, it's, it's, unless you've experienced it, it's, it's pretty crazy. I, I used to work for the South Dakota Department of Tourism and did outdoor promotions. And before I moved to Wyoming, well, I actually freelance when I was in South Dakota too. But um, but back in the day, we do sports shows and stuff. And and I talked with other outdoor media people. And my my go to line was in a bad year, even the worst year in South Dakota is better pheasant hunting than anywhere else in the country because <laughs> they, they always put out those reports and would say numbers are down this year, you know, the patch wasn't as good or whatever. And people come up talking and they say, Oh, I heard it was a bad, it's going to be a bad year in South Dakota. And I said, it may be a down year, but it's still better than anywhere else in the country. So just still go out and enjoy it. Yeah. If you've never been, and I'm assuming I haven't been, it's been, well, probably 15 years plus since I've been, I'm assuming they still do the same thing. First couple of weeks, it's 
shooting time starts at noon and then yeah, it's 10 a.m. after that. And I would yeah. tell you what, that to me was the most ingenious marketing tourism <laughs> thing. I mean, I was like, I was blown away by that because I, you know, how, how smart there's uh, South Dakota is a beautiful state and I'm not in any way knocking it, but there's, there's nothing really to do up there. I mean, it's much like Kansas, um, you know, hunting and that's about it. Um, but you get these guys that are out and they can go out and, you know, hit the bars and still get up in time and eat breakfast and still go out. And it's not going to in any way affect your ability to limit out your, your, your tags. It's, it's no, the most crazy hunting pheasant hunting. I, I mean, yeah, it's just absolutely crazy. And you got good grouse hunting up there as well. So. A very good sharp tail grouse. And then it's one of the more unique places in the country. You can, in a certain area, you can get greater prairie chickens too, as part of your, uh, three day prairie or three bird a day prairie grouse bag. So uh you can combo up. You could do pheasant, sharp tails, greater prairie chicken, and in some places even hunt huns yet. So Hungarians, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a it's a there's there's some very beautiful ground up there. It's it's really, really cool. So it's uh I, I, I'm definitely looking forward. I think I'm going to try to make that a trip this year as well. Um, since we started this gun shop and, uh, the, out, you know, the, the gun and bow shop here, we've, uh, things have changed a lot. And so now with content and you know what it is. Um, so we were, we were just sitting in a meeting a little while ago and talking about, um, content and what we're going to get lined out for the, the coming months, um, to, to, to do. And that's one of the, one of the trips that I have planned is to go back up there and, enjoy that again. So it's, it's, uh, I'd, I'd highly recommend it for anybody that's out there, but, um, do you still make the pheasant hunts a little bit or, I mean, as much as you're out chasing antlers and I mean, that, I would think that'd be probably difficult to fit in. It, it is. I, I actually go back to South Dakota almost every year when I draw a tag for whitetail hunting and it we're, we'll be crawling through fence lines, you know, it's big open country and, uh, pursuing whitetails and then we'll bust pheasants and it always like, why am I not spending another two or three days out here hunting pheasants and, and adding some sharp tails into it. And uh, as I get older and, and I am probably maybe older than I look, but <laughs> packing those elk out of the mountains is, uh, you know, the pheasants packing a pheasant out of a fence line is a lot easier than packing an elk out of the mountains. So. You you brought it up elk out of the mountains. I want to, I want to hear, you know, what you have to say about you, you time and time again, um, since I've been following you and, and watching, um, you know, what you're doing and, and the content that you're putting out and stuff. Um, you seem to get it done on public ground, especially, um, I mean, you get it done over and over and over, but y your, your, uh, success rate at public ground is just, it's pretty pretty remarkable. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, that I, I think I know somewhat of what, you know, your, your secret weapon is, but I want to hear what you have to say and maybe some pointers that you could tell our listeners out there, um, looking to, you know, either enhance their skills, um, you know, out West or, or even first time getting into it. Well, the first thing is you just, you gotta be an idiot like me and <laughs> keep pushing yourself. That's probably the, Right, the baseline of everything. But um, but one of the first things to start with is you've got to apply and begin building preference points because elk hunting over the counter, you know, 
you and I know just like Kansas, even whitetail hunting, a lot of areas are becoming harder to draw a tag. Well, when you take a whitetail population that's fairly high and an elk population that isn't, there's just not that many opportunities. So you got to build preference points and you have to do it in a multi multiple states so you so you've got preference points building in montana wyoming utah arizona uh new mexico doesn't have that so new mexico is just random every year but um build preference points and if you have kids and they and you have any inkling they're going to want to be a hunter start building preference points the minute you can that they're old enough because uh if you sit and wait to like my age uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, even you won't build enough preference points. And if you do finally draw a tag, you'll be 85 years old, dribbling, drooling on yourself in a uh, senior citizen center and can't go out and do it. So that's number one. Number two is um, you have to do research, find where there's good elk densities. Unfortunately, there's really good elk densities in many parts of the West now. But what I also tell people is look for hunting units that are surrounded by public land and then surrounded by more public land. And that has a good elk density because what you're seeing in the West is a transition where elk are now escaping from the mountains down to private ranches. And there's so many big ranches being bought up by uh, absentee landowners, people that don't allow a lot of hunting on it. And those elk figure that out right away. And there'll be hundreds of elk landlocked on a ranch and no one ha hardly has any access to them. So you want to find areas where the elk can't do that if it's, if it's at all possible and, and then be hunting that unit. And then the third thing is you've got to, you just got to be in shape. Uh, DIY elk hunting on public land, unless you're lucky enough to draw some great premium tag that has very limited number of hunters in it, and the elk are just free roaming everywhere and acting like elk because they begin not to act like elk the minute they sense pressure. But um, the average uh, elk area you're going to hunt is going to require two to three miles hiking in every day from your base camp, unless you're going to backpack it or you know just do a continuous backpack hunt. And uh, when you do kill an elk, if, if you're successful, you got to pack it out from an area like that. So that means minimum of three big loads of meat at 100 pounds a piece. Uh, and those are the, about the max loads I've ever done is getting an elk out by myself in three loads at a uh, Three loads get the whole thing out. And that's not bone, uh, bone quarters. That's deep bone quarters, you know, just raw meat. Right. And, and it's funny that you say about the staying in shape or getting in shape or being in shape because over and over and over, I hear that, you know, time and time again, you're just not going to be able to, to be able to go out there and, and be, you're just, you're, you're not setting yourself up for success if you're not in shape, especially somebody like, you know, like me coming from Kansas where, you know, the elevation change. So it's, it's, you know, that, that alone is a big deal. And then, you know, there's not really any way for us to train for that or to, to get our bodies ready for that. Um, so you got to be in really good shape and then you go to the mountains and, and, and then you get really told where you're at or shown where you're at. Yeah. As to, yeah. As to how well you're going to spend two, two days, roughly uh, a day for sure, if not two, getting elevation acclimated. Uh, and there's ways to do it 
in Kansas, they, they, you can wear those oxygen masks, reduce your oxygen and be on the elliptical or, you know, the treadmill with reduced oxygen, but you know, who, who wants to do that? Just, you know, you just go a day or two early, but, um, the other thing is you just need to look at reality. When you break down all elk hunting across the West on public lands, DIY, in basic units, not premier units, success is 15%, and that includes some outfitted hunts. If you're just doing it with on your own in a, a general unit, it's probably only be around 10, 11% success. So you're not looking at even with a rifle, you throw the rifle numbers and muzzleloader statistics in it, you rarely get above uh, 15%, you know. Yeah, so the uh, first numbers you were throwing out, that was archery? Or was that combined? Oh, that was everything. Everything. Crazy. So it's it's depressing. I mean, it, right away, it makes people look the other way. But, you know, in the long run, I'm a, I was a cornfield kid. It's like you're from the Great Plains. Yeah, I was from the Great Plains, a little bit more Midwest edge of South Dakota. But uh, you can you can learn elk hunting. It, in fact, a lot of my whitetail stuff that I learned in the cornfields and in the Great Plains. Uh, when I, I lived in the central part of the state too for quite a while, South Dakota, which is big, wide open country. But you can transition a lot of that into elk hunting. And adapt, you know, there's, there's places to sit and wait and watch for elk, uh, in the archery season, water wallows are big, uh, areas during rifle season, saddles, uh, basins, parks, meadows type things, watching them. Those are, those are all whitetail adaptable strategies to put into an elk hunt. So, I mean, it's, it's not like I'm a, uh, a super hunter or anything. It's just that, you know, I try, I try to take my strategies. I learn. Hey, the elk aren't on the mountain today. They're they're all tr- running down to these guys' hay fields seven miles away, and they're living on the land around there. And then figure out how to work in there where you can uh, hunt some of those satellite bulls that are you know looking for uh, looking for a uh, estrus cow, but they're getting pushed out of one herd, so they'll move to another one. And if you can find a sliver of public land that butts up against some of that private land. You just got to continually adapt and you never elk should, you should be mobile, very mobile. You should never just set up a big camp. I'm going to stay right here. Never move. Uh, you definitely want to be flowing and be able to transition with the elk as they transition in archery season. They do, you know, you, you always think in the old days, reading books and watching old films, the Eastman films or whatever, the elk are going to climb the mountains, migrate all the way down, you know, as the snow piles up and, they do that in some areas now, but I'm looking out the window of my house right now to a hunting unit in Wyoming. I see the mountains right there. And those elk start running off the mountain August 30th at 10,000 feet, and they'll make 6,000 feet in a few days, all based on hunting pressure. Seven, 800 head of elk will come flying off that mountain. And uh, they're not waiting for snow. They know they got a locked gate. They can run and get behind and see just very minimal hunting pressures compared to what they're going to see up on the mountain. So you, you just got to always be adapting on public land. And I, I think that's, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of uh, hard headed. I'd hate to fail in whatever I do. So that's helped me. But changing your strategies, if the elk aren't here, the elk aren't doing what you want to do, just every day be able to adapt. 
I know another thing just from following you and watching you and, and is the amount of time that you put into it. And that's kind of a luxury that you have being where you live, but you also, um, you know, for anybody that follows you on social media, you're, you're every day, if not every day, but you're, you're at least every week you're out, you know, looking for sheds. Um, you know, and, and I would tell you that I would think for somebody, you know, from the outside looking in, you would think that you've, you know, all that ground by the back of your hand. And you would know where all the saddles are and where all the pinch points are and where all the, you know, the, for lack of better terms, trails are or the, or the, the routes that they take. And it's, it's interesting to me that how many times I see, I'll see your media and I'll be like, oh, well, he's just said something about how oh, I found a new spot and I'm going to mark that and, and come back to it. And that's the other thing is, is that, you know, you've, you've got to have a knowledge and be out in, in the, the, the woods, so to say. And, it, and that's really not much different than, than whitetail. I mean, it's very similar. Very, very similar. I was, I was out yesterday. I was up on the mountain and did a pretty good hike through some country that I've, I've hiked before, but I went into the timber more to look at more of the timber terrain, what was going on. You, you know, elk hunting, like whitetail hunting, you're looking at edges a lot and opens, openings and that. And, but getting into the timber and just working through some of these steeper slopes just a summer hike. It's cooler in there, and you know, with the canopy cover, you get to see where those elk. They've got their runs through there. You can see the trails. You can see where they're rubbing, just like whitetail. You know, the, the rubs from last September are are still very evident there, and uh, it it gives up a lot. It's just you know, fun time to get up in the mountains. I I was hadn't been up for a few days, so uh, uh, through through I, what I do is. One of the ways I hunt, and I do this almost everywhere, is I have a four-wheeler with me. And just like yesterday, I had four in the back of the truck, drive as far as I can into some rough country on the ATV, and then park the ATV, and then I dive off into the, the different holes where I'm either going to scout or hunt. And uh, it, that system's worked pretty good for me. And I said, you don't want to have a base camp. I do typically have a base camp, but it's a trailer that I can hook on and leave. Uh, you know, if I need to move somewhere, the trailer is easily packed up and I can go instead of, you know, you stake down a wall tent, a couple wall tents and set up a camp like that. You're, you've got some hours into it time. My horse trailer, uh, which is very rough camp, <laughs> I I can put up camp in an hour and break down camp in an hour and be moved. And he, sometimes I'll even leave it and just take off in my truck and sleep in the front seat of the truck. I'll put the ATV in the back of the truck and take off to a new area, unload the ATV, go a few miles, whatever, until the end of the trail, hike, hunts, try to find elk again, and then come back to the truck and I can just sleep in the front seat for a day or two as I'm hopscotching around trying to figure out where the elk went or trying to find a a new vocal bull somewhere. But, uh, but yeah, I do. I'm, I'm out as much as I can be, uh, uh, here in, and when I go other places, same way, I try not to sit around camp too much. I try to be out, you know, glassing, scouting, setting up new stands. If it's whitetail country, uh, or, or just looking at new ambush spots. I'm assuming, and again, I've not been elk hunting, so, you know, I'm, I'm one of them listening intently as well. I'm assuming that the wallers and the rubs and those from year to year, they generally will stay and use the same tree or the same waller similar to whitetail. 
they they rarely use same trees. Uh, I would say it's probably twenty percent, maybe. You'll find some just like a white tail rub. You will find a few of those big mass trees that seems like a bull will rub on, but they tend to uh, you know just just like a white tail roaming around. They'll just hit tree after tree after tree wherever they decide to hang up. Uh, they'll get into a north slope, work around, try to find a bench. The herd will start laying down the bull, and he'll just stand and rub in a new area. Wallows can be traditional, and I've got several of them that I set tree stands up over, and, and have left the tree stands up, uh, you know, for the season, just because the, those elk in in the west, even though it looks like there's a lot of water, a lot of the areas I hunt are fairly arid, so there's certain pockets of water, and those elk will do a you know roundabout trip through their territory early on. Hit this water, this water, this water, this water, uh, and sometimes it's so dry they hit the same one over and over and over. And in a tree stand or a ground blind, or just a little, you know, impromptu blind you build right there uh, is a good way to kill an elk. There. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> again, just education, getting yourself knowing the area and and uh, things that you have that are that are helpful with you being there. But for guys like us that are, you know. M- uh, several hours away from, you know, an elk habitat, you, you're going to, you're going to be behind the eight ball, so to say. So you, anything that you can do before that to get yourself set up for success, like being in shape and that kind of stuff, you, you need to definitely take advantage of that for sure. So, so going back to time, you mentioned that earlier and I write about this uh, a lot in my elk articles, my average DIY public land hunt is roughly eight, maybe to 15 days of hunting. So if I were going out West, say, say you're going out to Colorado or Utah or wherever, and and you're doing it on yourself on public land. And even though it could be a good area, I would set aside a minimum of a week, if not two, if you can. Now, as for my business, I try to, get all my work done. I'm working on assignments right now for going into December. So I have all that stuff done. So I can just go from elk to deer to coyote or whatever I want to do in the next few months of hunting season as it comes up. But for the average guy is going to have to put in for work, uh, the average guy or gal and get their vacation time set up. So on DIYL, I, I would definitely say more time than less because like outfitted hunts, are, a lot of them are five, six days typically. And uh, and that's on a leased property, big ranch. They know where the elk are. The elk are coming in. Like I said, a lot of times elk will come into those places if they don't pressure it too much. And you can get a hunt done in five days. But I, I've had, it took me one year, 18 days, I believe it was, to kill a bull. And actually, it's the bull right there. Uh, that big, that's, that's my biggest bull ever on public land uh, DIY, but that was 18 days of hard hunting. And I, and I didn't even know that bull was there. I mean, it was just, uh, he roamed in, they were at that area. They just kind of come in and out. So you just never know what you're going to see. But, um, what is that? A six by six, seven? Is that a seven? He's a, a six by seven boy. Yeah. Yeah. The left side is a seven. Uh, <laughs> his right side yeah and and talk about scouting it's 
over in the corner of this room, like, I don't know if you can see that far, but I got a pile of shit. I got piles of elk sheds everywhere in my ear. But um, I actually have a shed off him that I found the spring before. And it kind of pointed me into this area. And then as I hunted it, I opened up a little bit more. Just just like you said, I'm looking at, you said, Mark's scouting a new area or whatever you see. I'm always trying to take another jump into new territory when I can, you know, or, or take that next hike into a, a new canyon. And and that, and in that situation, it uh, helped open up my eyes to some big brand new country. What, when, when did you shoot that out? Uh, 2015. 2015. Yeah. What that's, uh, and that's a young bull, believe it. That, that unit has, well, the other bull beside him is uh, from the same rough area, but it's, that area's got some really good genetics. And so that bull that uh, up here, I don't, I'm not even sure. I think he's five and a half at most. And big bulls don't mature at minimum, usually six, seven, and eight, and nine is when they really, if you look, if you look at the two bulls up there side by side, the the bigger bull actually doesn't, isn't piped out with mass like the other one. And the other one uh, was I think he was seven and a half aged though. So. What um did you have him scored? What did they score? He uh and I take I I get to take just a little bit of cheating. I call him a 380. He grosses 379 and 78. So, <laughs> so I, I figure uh I almost that took out part of my spine so I can cheat it by an eighth of an inch. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. He took more than an eighth of an inch out of your spine. So, yeah. Oh my God. All these elk in here, have, uh, they're literally destroying my body. Cause I, I do a lot of hunting solo and uh, you get an elk down by yourself and you're looking at a seven, eight, some of those bulls, like these two bulls came from, Areas where they're actually bigger than that, they they'll run nine hundred to a thousand pounds on the hoof. So you're looking at something like that laying there, and it's like now I'm responsible for getting all that meat back to the trailhead. And that that bull up here, the bigger one, that day the temperatures got up to how it was eighty two or eighty five. It was a hot day in late September, and so I was I was just humping meat like a madman and i i and he died on an open slope which you always like oh elk are in the timber and everything that darn thing ran out made a big arc on an opening and he actually crashed into a a dead tree and the tree fell over him on this open slope as one dead tree and so when i come up out of the basin where i shot him because i shot him quarter away so it took him just a little bit longer to, he had a pretty good run in i mean i don't know if he went Two three hundred yards at most, but it was up and out of the basin. I come up and out of there, and I'm like, "It's an open slope. Where is he?" I and then right away depression set in. It's like, "Oh, I made a bad hit," you know. And it's like, "There's no way he can hide." And there was another little stunted tree just off to the side, and it was getting hot then. That was like at ten in the morning, probably. It was a late encounter with him, and. uh so I walked over to the one other stunted tree to get in the shade and that dead tree, there's a deadfall laying over there. And I'm just like, you know, starting to pray to God and what am I going to do and all this. And I look over there and it's like, Oh my gosh, there's an antler sticking out of that tree. <laughs> and he, that he had hit that tree and the tree fell on top and perfect camouflage. 
I mean, but then he was in the open and I had to get the meat off him as fast as I could. And I was hustling it up to some other trees to stash it before I started the pack out. It's always some. Isn't it crazy <laughs> how much they can blend in? I mean, oh, oh. we, you know, we as hunters, you know, and, and I don't know how much, you know, truly uh, camouflage. I mean, I'm, I know camouflage helps, but, um, and I'm not in any way dissing it, but you see the pictures of these old timers, you know, and they're just wearing, you know, red wool coats and stuff like that. And it's, you know, I I think you would probably agree that the, the, the biggest thing is just movement, but you know, here's these animals and, and for the most part, they're all one, you know, solid color. And I mean, we shot a mule deer a couple of years ago and this thing had, you know, taken off and, I mean, we had a heck of a blood trail and uh, kind of a similar situation. There was just a few trees here and there it was an evergreen um, kind of on a slide of a, of a, of a sand hill kind of. Um, and we, he, my Blake had shot this deer and it took off and we had a real good blood trail. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, he's up a little bit ahead of me and he's like, man, I, I just, I don't know where, I don't know where it could have gone. I don't, I've lost blood completely. And then I was like, well, just hold on a second. You know, I'm, I'm about 15 yards behind him. I'm like, we have last blood right here. And he is literally standing right next to an evergreen tree. And it's that deer is wrapped around this evergreen tree had kind of slid down this little sand hill. And he's wrapped around this evergreen tree, you know, kind of like a horseshoe. And he had been standing there for three or four minutes, just looking around, trying to find more blood and everything. And finally I followed the blood up to there and went back a couple of times to make sure that maybe the deer didn't, you know, backtrack on us or whatever. And, we got to right there and we're shooting shit. So we'd both been standing there for, you know, he'd probably been there for six or eight minutes and I'd been there for a couple. And I just happened to look to my left. And I mean, he was eight feet to the left of us just, and I mean, we actually took a picture of that deer where without moving him and you have to zoom all the way in before you can finally see what it is. And it's not even, there's not even a lot of limbs between us. It's just, he was eight, eight or 10 feet from us. And just, it's just amazing how much they can blend in. It's, it's really, yeah, those, truly those hides and just the subtle, like, you know, elk have just a subtle shade shift in their, you know, hides throughout, but, uh, boy, it's, it's, it's absolutely nature's best camouflage. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So <clears throat> your top animal to hunt, I know you've said antlers. Is it, is it elk? Yeah, it's probably elk. I, I mean, I go back and forth because I love rattling white tails and uh, decoying white tails. I mean, that's and it's how I kind of cut my teeth growing up and everything. But just moving west, uh, and I and I literally moved west to hunt elk, so I could always <laughs> so I could always hunt elk. And my wife, I, I you know, I praise her all the time. She she backed me on it and she was ready for a move too from our where we live in South Dakota and our kids were young enough at the time it was it had to do it before they got too cemented in with their relationships too with you know other kids and stuff but um I did I moved west to hunt elk and uh and uh yeah so where do where does where does mule deer fit in there for you they're they're probably third in in another one that probably ties with them uh, if we're talking antlers and horns, or I love hunting pronghorn too. I just love the country. I I, I kind of like the relaxing part of August antelope hunting from ground blind at a water hole. I don't know why it is. Maybe I'm just getting lazier too. But I've I've been I've loved that for years too. It's just the simplicity of it. 
If you can find where they're coming to water, you set up a, a ground line. They don't care about the ground line. And it's a very controlled, like a uh, black bear hunting over a bay. They're, they're going to come in. They take one to two minutes to fill up. And you can just watch their stomachs expand as they're drinking water so you can range. And, and it's a fun hunt for kids because then you can talk to, you know, just like sitting up in a tree stand over a bear bait. You can just talk the kid through it, talk yourself through it, you know. Okay, they're just start drinking. Don't get in a rush, you know, range. Make sure everything's right. Make sure they're positioned right. And uh, so I do love that. Mule deer hunting, going back to that. Uh, it's getting harder and harder hunting mule deer in the West because there's just some huge dynamic population changes. And and I've seen it just since I've lived in Wyoming. One of the places I pick up elk and there's a, a big slope. I pick up mule deer sheds in there too. And in the last uh, 10 years, it's went from picking up a lot of mule deer antlers six seven eight a trip to one a season wow and i i picked up one yesterday actually in the dark timber when i was out scouting elk uh some an elk unit and i was like wow there's some mule deer alive but i'll i'll go out you know on a good day pick up three or four brown elk sheds which is a pretty good day and maybe two or three old ones if you, so if you come off you know the mountain with four or five elk sheds you're on a pretty good day that's that's per elk shed trip or per shed hunting trip. The whole season, the last two or three seasons, I've only found one, two or three mule deer sheds the whole season. Now that's on, uh, I live just uh, west of Sheridan, Wyoming. That's on the Bighorn Mountain. On some of the private land around here, you still see good numbers. And I see good numbers, like even in my horse pasture, just uh, out behind my house here, I've got mule deer but the big bucks, the big deer numbers, they're just not there like they were. So they're oh, there. That's crazy. I, I mean, for a guy I, that spends as much time as you do, I mean, you, you basically live out there in the woods. So you, as you stated, you know, in your horse pasture, you've, you've got, um, you've got, you know, uh, deer out there, but I mean, if you're only finding a couple of sheds here and there, that's just wild. I think the mountain mule deer population is in real trouble right now. And I've got a wall in my garage of big old sheds out, out here are sheds unlike kansas you know when i go to greg's place or whatever squirrels eat them up it's hard to find a shed that's two or three years old oh yeah you're not going to find one two or three years old it, if right. you're, you're lucky to find it eight months well it, at six or eight months as you well know it's already got two marks on it substantial so, two marks. so out here you can find them 30 40 years old easy and I know that just from some old sheds I found and having piles yet, I can identify them and they're easy that. But so I've got all these old mule deer sheds from uh, a pretty nice area I shed hunt on and they're big, but they're old. I mean, there's some 190, 200 class mule deer sheds I found there, a lot of 150 to 180, but you just don't find new ones anymore. You're just picking up all these old white, you know, chalky ones that are shoved up under a mountain mahogany bush or under a cedar tree or something. And so it's the mule deer hunting, at least in my backyard, isn't what it used to be at all. Yeah. So with your, with regards to the mule deer hunting for yourself, is that, um, 
an add-on tag a lot of times, or is that something that you will uh, actively put in for um, and and make that a hunt for your season? I I try to tie in a mule deer hunt every year. Last year, I actually had two tags. They were both in South Dakota next door for mule deer. Uh, or no, let me think back. One was Montana, excuse me. I had two tags in South Dakota, but we, and one could have been from you there. We filled it with white tail. But, um, so I do try to set up a hunt every year, but it's for DIY stuff. Like I said, in my backyard, it's getting pretty hard. It's just not, the numbers just aren't there like they used to be. But last year I hunted on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. We had pretty good hunting there. And then I ended up my last hunt of the year. We were in, uh, Eastern Montana, and I hooked up with an outfitter buddy of mine who helps me time to time do filming. I film hunts for deer and deer hunting TV. And in fact, our new season just launched at the you know beginning of July, like a lot of third, fourth quarter hunting shows uh, launch. So if you if you want if people want to see me hunting, yeah, where, do, where do they go? Where do they go to see that TV on pursuit? Yep, on pursuit. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so this year or this season, I guess. So last year, what hunts are you going to have that's on uh, deer and deer hunting TV? Uh, this year, which is last year, right? Last hunting season, it's going to kick off with the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation hunt, and that's a pretty cool hunt because we got. I don't, I can't remember Nebraska had it, but if you remember last, like early November, Nebraska and South Dakota got coated in ice, and I mean layers of ice like this it, it rained and you know how it was just had, it was perfect storm temperature was just right it'd come down rain freeze we hunted in that we could hardly get to our hunting spots truck was sliding off the road the grass had ice diameter that big around on the grass stems it was just crazy but it turned out to be a pretty neat hunt did another one of these they i call a buddy of mine started but he calls it the kaiser crawl whenever i see deer out there, I start crawling to him to get to a shooting position. So I'm a self-taught and I self-taught a, a sniper style of hunting. And so I love crawling out to a point, pushing the gun out just like a sniper would. And then I'm on bipods, my backpack, whatever, and shoot. So that hunts, uh, that's actually airing next week. I think that kicks off. And then we moved to South Dakota just up uh, along the northern part on the Missouri River, Lewis and Clark country. I have one of my best friends lives there, and he lets me hunt his ranch, and we usually find another place to hunt there. But uh, same thing, cruddy, sub-zero, uh, you know, like 5, 10 below, and then 30 below wind chills, and we're out there. And uh, that hunt shows, uh, again, how weird I am that I would stay out and, uh, <laughs> and hunt like that. And same thing, set up on a point. Laid my backpack down. I knew these bucks were coming up this draw. And you can just see the grass is just blowing like crazy. And I'm dressed like an Eskimo. And it, it was a it was just awful, awful hunt. And then for coldness, it turned out to be a good hunt. Killed a nice deer on it. And then the third hunt was in Montana with that outfitter friend of mine. And uh, he was having some problems. He thought it was long COVID or something. He was, you know, the cold air breathing. He was coughing. So we'd find the deer. And then he would... um let me go stalk it with the cameraman and, and late. It was like the last three or four days of the season my, that we hunted. And on the last or second last day, finally found a real nice mule deer. 
same thing, <laughs> crawled up to a ledge, poked the gun over, and those deer were spooky. They, I mean, I don't know how they even heard or sensed us or saw us, but they started moving, fidgeting. And I told the cameraman, I hadn't even brought him up, said, come up, come up, come up. We got to get on this deer. And uh, I had him take a little bit of a jog run shot on him. But uh, it ended up good. So it, it was a long, three, I think we hunted three days. It was a four-day hunt. Hunted three days and killed him on the fourth day. A nice, mature mule deer buck. Nice. Those were all three rifle? Those are three rifle. Now, coming up this year, we're going to have a Kansas archery that I, I self-filmed, and they didn't have room for it. So that's going to be on deer and deer hunting, which would be 2024. And it's one of my bigger archery kills that I uh, killed in Kansas, my favorite spot to go kill big bucks. And, uh, and Plus, uh, I've seen the deer. I've seen the picture of the deer. Yeah, big, brawny, bodied. And then he's real clean. He's seven on one side and then just crazy on the other. So uh, that was that was a good hunt. And so that will air. And then we're going to do, um, let's see, South Dakota again. I'm going to hunt with my good buddy up in North Central South Dakota. And then I'm um, waiting on a third hunt right now to set up. I may end up in Nebraska. Uh, Hornady is one of my sponsors. So, so. right, the, the hunt you're talking about right now, you're talking about for this season, this hunting season that's coming up, 2023, coming up 2024. Yep. So, so one is in the can, and we're going to film two new ones. Okay. So, with regards to that, was because that was a question that um, Greg told me to ask you. He said you got you drew something you're you're pretty happy about. Did you draw? Uh, a hunt? <laughs> Or are you not? I haven't even told anybody that. Okay, well then we don't have to talk about it. So we'll we'll just pass. I drew a good elk tag. Okay, yeah. So I'm I'm going to be on a really good elk hunt. Well then, then just leave it at that. I I think we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Because I I haven't publicly told. Well then, don't. Yeah, I mean, but so so here we go. If you guys want to know about it, get get a hold of Mark on follow him on social media. You're on Facebook. Yep. Facebook and Instagram, right? Well, and Twitter. I put everything on those three platforms. platforms. That's the same thing. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And we're on YouTube as well. And on YouTube, yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like we're on the same. So um, then everybody that's that's listening, make sure you go and look up Mark Kaiser. Follow him because your stuff, you're very active in social media. So um, I'm sure at some point you're going to be announcing or people are going to see what we just alluded to and talked about, but there's going to be a, a an elk hunt that's going to be in the season for you this year. And I'm excited to see how that goes for you. I'm sure you'll be successful and I'm sure it's going to be another one that's going to be up behind you right there. <laughs> I'm right. Run, I'm running out of room. At least my wife tells me that. <laughs> so, so we've talked about in, in the camera shot here that, that, that the viewers can see that are watching us on video um, on YouTube We've talked about the two uh, elk. What about the uh, deer there in the middle? That that middle deer, that's my headpiece there, is uh, my best white tail. And that came on a DIY hunt in South Dakota. And he scores 207 gross, I think. And he nets 20. This is horrible. I don't even know the net on it. 202. He actually nets that. Not now, non typical. But, uh, but that deer I put in a good solid two weeks on, a week archery hunting, and then three or four days rifle hunting, and then three or four more days I had at the end of the season rifle hunting, and never laid eyes on him 
until the day I pulled the trigger on him. And I, and I saw him for a mere 30 seconds, 40 seconds. That's how elusive and savvy that buck was. I knew he was there. I, yeah, we did. I, uh, my other, it was me and two other guys, three other guys had a hunting property that we had leased. We paid this ranch or we knew a local rancher. So we kind of had it, had it to ourselves, but it was up against tribal hunting. So there was a lot of tribal activity on the bordering land. And I later found out after I killed him that one of the tribal hunters had eyes on him quite a bit more than obviously I did because I never saw him until I killed him. But my buddies had seen him. We knew which area of timber he was living in. And uh, I just put in as much time as I could. And I finally fell together on the second to the last day of the season on him. And how long ago was that? 2008. Yeah. And, and by no means that's a, I mean, any, any deer. Well, I, I heard a, I heard a, a little, I was watching, you know, content and I think it was a reel or a short or something. And there was uh, some guys sitting around talking about deer hunting and they said, um, less than 10% of all white uh, deer hunters, not just white tail, all deer hunters, less than 10% cent will shoot a 135 inch deer. And I thought that to me, that seemed a little bit low, but if you would have said, um, you know, 150, uh, I would have said that I could, I could believe that. But so where I was going with that is, is that, you know, uh, being from Kansas, we, we often, uh, you know, kind of get, uh, turn our noses up to, to what's considered a big deer. And, you know, 165, we talk, we talk about 165 inch deer around here and that's what we're going to let him grow. Um, so, you know, anybody that can shoot one, you know, 180 or a 200, anytime you get over that 200, man, that's just an absolute monster of a deer, no matter where you're at. Um, but South Dakota, who's not necessarily known, that's a, that's an absolute giant. And I believe I've seen figures like that. And I think that figure is actually going up a little bit with private, you know, all the private management that goes on nowadays. But uh, you talk to guys when I used to go to a lot more sports shows, exactly a 120, 130 class deer. That's their biggest deer that they've shot in their lives. So, uh, and and as an avid shed hunter, I, I shed hunted crazy when I lived in South Dakota for whitetail sheds. And I've got, 5,000 of them maybe in my barn, just stacks of them. Greg's, Greg's told me you just have, um, how do you keep the mice out of that? Uh, I guess you just said you don't have them around there. Yeah, we don't have many, we don't have many mouse problems. I got a barn cat and I just throw out some poison too, but I've never, never seen one shoot at all in my, all my piles in my barn. But, uh, but out of all those sheds, I have very few that go over 140. 140, is, at least in South Dakota, that area was the mature mark of most deer. And and then they would, wouldn't live to five and a half years too. You know, they're usually getting picked off by the time they're four and a half years old. And when you're saying 140, are you talking about 140 on that side for that, that just that deer? Are you talking, you're talking if you were to multiply it? That's what yeah. You're if I, if I found the side of shed, I'd measure that side, double it and throw in 16, 17 inch inside, whatever I thought, you know? Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, being from around here, you know, as you know, because you've hunted here and, and, and you know, the area, it's just, you know, we have big deer all the time, but 
you know, we've, we've had a guest on the podcast before and they've talked about, you know, being up in, you know, uh, the, the big woods of Michigan and, you know, up in the Northeast and, you know, they'll go out hunting and, you know, they won't see a deer for two days. And around here, I don't think I've been, I don't think I've ever had a season where I've been out deer hunting and had two days where I didn't see a deer when I went and sat in the stand. So I'm talking, right. you know, I go sit in the stand and hunt and I didn't see a single deer. I, I don't think to the best of my knowledge that I've had a, it's been a, if it has happened, it would have been a long, long time ago when I first did, you know, when I was just learning the ropes, so to say. And, but you know, we'll, we, we very rarely go out and not, not see a deer, much less go days without seeing one. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for us to lose count of how many we see. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy what we have here available to us, but, um, the, for the mature whitetail deer. And I, I'm, that's why they call it the land of Oz. It's, it's Kansas good. Kansas definitely a gem that I don't know if you can see that buck. Uh, well, it's on the other side of the big one. That's a, a 180 class. Kansas. That's the one you like shot it, like with. It. Is that the one you shot at Greg's when he shot one the same day? Yep. We shot that. Yeah. Well, no, no that wasn't the one we shot the same day. That was a different year, but uh, that's a buck we nicknamed HD because he's got a really good mass. Call him heavy duty. And, uh greg had encounters with him and i think greg had already tagged out i remember he killed a big non-typical early that year but anyway uh that deer disappeared during the rut you know how they'll all of a sudden disappear for three four days and so i went to iowa i was going back and forth to iowa and and greg texted me or i said and had a picture of him on trail camera. he goes hd returned and i was having a tough time in iowa so i packed up that night drove through the middle of the night back uh, Kansas, and I think I killed him the next afternoon. Greg was duck hunting, and I went out and sat stand. Sure enough, here he showed up, and that's you know fairly common trait that uh, during what the, everybody calls the lockdown period, which is or isn't a true phenomenon, dear. But uh, they'll leave, they'll still leave. They'll just leave their territory for you know two three days. Hook up with a doe, maybe two miles away, three miles away, four miles away. Who knows? But then eventually, after several days, make their way back. And I'm sure that's what he did. He was just on another neighboring property, you know, breeding a doe and come back to the core area where he knew there were does there that maybe he'd come into Estrus and do a little pass through and uh, screwed up, man. He screwed, yeah. screwed up. <laughs> he took advantage of it. Right place, right time for you. Wrong, pl- right, wrong place, wrong time for him. But, you know, that's that's what it's all about. And that's why it's called hunting. But, yeah, I, I, I genuinely, I, I believe that lockdown it it happens. I mean, I think I, I know you've seen it. I've seen it where it's just as you just described, you know, it's, it, it definitely takes place. So, and you can have pick, you know, that's the other thing I think that, you know, for people that, that don't know, um, or aren't into hunting and they think that, you know, trail cameras are, you know, that's cheating. I, I would have to highly disagree with you because you can have pictures of a deer on trail camera and, you know, he's coming in like, you know, all the time and you're patterning them. And then that doesn't mean that you're going to, that deer's going to do it. They're a wild animal. It is, oh. they can go anywhere. And, um, it's just, it's, it, it is a tool in the bag, but it's definitely not, there's no, I don't, it's not a game changer in, in my mind. At all. Even Charles that send you pictures, you know, you gotta be that close 
to run back, you know, to run to that spot and meet up with that deer, especially if you're in the rut, you know, because they'll come by the trail camera. They could be uh, 500 yards away in thick timber by the time, even if you're sitting at the gate 100 yards away in a truck and it pops up, you know, it's, it's still, it's, it is though, I believe, a great tool for people, uh, again, on a, on a time constraint hunting, because it kind of shows you the pattern, what's going on. And, uh, especially if you hunt a property year after year, you know, you can kind of see, well, this is what we're always seeing at this time of year on the trail camera in this spot, at this food plot, in this, uh, draw or whatever, this old draw, you know, so you can plan again a little better over the years if, if your, if your property is fairly consistent in management. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is, is that I still catch myself if we get a new piece of property going back to the basics. I mean, when I first started, you know, hunting and I learned a lot of my hunting, um, you know, with Greg, um, you look at the ground, you look at, like we just talked about earlier when you were speaking of, of elk, you look at pinch points, you look at draws, you look at the lay of the land and, while they are wild animals, they are going to have, you know, tendencies to go and follow certain, you know, there's a reason why there's a path where the paths are. And I think any of, you know, again, we've all taken the fence. If it's, you know, if it's our property and we can do it, we'll take the fence and, and, you know, lower the barbed wire fence down or, or, you know, twist them together. And you'll see the deer that they'll move that, that trail six or eight feet over from where it was before because it's easier the path of least resistance, you know, and that kind of stuff. So if you, you know, based upon what the, the, the landmarks are and what, what is out there, you know, in the, in the woods, if you will, they're going to, they're going to use those to, you know, exert the least amount of energy, but still stay alive. Path, path of least resistance. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I think it breaks down to calories, you know, they're, they're, it's a, they are a tough, tough, tough animal, smart, and they, you know, everything is, is, you know, so to say out to get them. And so they're, uh, you know, it's a calorie intake and calorie burning. And so if they can keep from burning calories other than the rut, once the, once the rut kicks kicked on, it's all, all, all everything out the window. Yeah. And I've, we've, we've all had that experience. I had one a couple of years ago and I've talked about it several times on here, but uh, I'll have to, after the, after this, I'll send you a video of one that this dude walked up within, I mean, I could have touched his nose and I had my, my bow on my back. Like just, yeah. But, um, yeah, once you get to the rut, it's just, oh, then you just need to have your butt in the field in a stand. And now you, what you just said, remind me of another story, um, walking country, looking at stuff, you know, the basics of scouting last year, I, um, happened to go over this high peak and look down below we were actually following some elk and I had hunted the other side of the mountain. There was a big opening there and the elk would come through in the morning. So it was a very distinct morning pattern and they were coming from one area, crossing this deal, uh, this park slope or whatever, open grass feeding across it and then going in dark timber. And it's as vertical as vertical could be. And I killed an elk in there in 2019 with rifle and it's so steep. He catapulted, head over tail down the mountain. It's it's sheep type stuff. But anyway, I was always figuring out, wondering why were they all coming from that corner always and got back in there. Well, here there's running water down there, not even 200 yards down the mountain. So they were feeding all night, going over there to get their water when there wasn't snow. Uh, you know, it was open type uh, 
hunting yet. And, and then they would come back up to where I was to get on that steep slope to get away from hunting pressure and then bed up in the dark timber there. So you piece stuff together. Sometimes it takes a while. That took me uh, three years to figure out. <laughs> just because it's so steep in there, you just don't like, it's not like jumping out of your truck and go walking down fence line and up a little draw you know in kansas it's like god do i want to burn another thousand calories to go up you know 700 more straight up feet to look over the other side but i like i said we just happened to be in there circling around did he break antlers when he went tumbling uh no he he didn't he there was three bulls come out and, and there's only one lone tree on this whole slope and they're going past there and I'm glassing each one. It's like, okay, this is the one I want to shoot. Figured it, figured which one had the bigger body, better uh, mass antlers. So it was two six points. And one. Actually, I think they were all three. One was a small six point. But he, he just kind of come out in front and he was feeding yet. And I everything was calm. So I picked up my little camera I carry with me and took a picture of him. It was, turned out blurry because it was slow light. It was like in the first five minutes of shooting light. But anyway, I was shooting over my backpack, 319 yards, boom. And he twirled, stayed on his feet, flopped ends, and walked behind that tree again. And so I'm reloading, getting ready. And all of a sudden, he comes out from behind that tree. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> and, and again, I was like, no. It's like he said, he'd break antlers. There's no way he's going to make it off that. So he locked in there. You know, he ended, he stopped, he had some sagebrush, again, vertical. I couldn't even believe it. I hooked him up. And it took me another half hour to make it up there. It wasn't very far. It was only 319 yards, you know, angle-wise ranging. But um, it was super steep, and I had to contour some. And not one antler was broke. I could not believe it. That's amazing. But... So I, he's laying there and I start, I take pictures and stuff, start deboning him. And he's just, it's, it, I mean, I hunt some real crazy stuff. It was super vertical. In fact, my buddy, he, I texted him a picture and the Googler's coordinates. I said, here's where I'm at. If I die or something happens, come. and he pulled it up and he, and then he texted me back. He goes, nice bull, but why did you hunt there? <laughs> but anyway, I, I got half the bull deboned. And so I had to flip the other half over. And, you know, you're just jacked up on adrenaline. You know, now you're just, because I'm well into the deboning stuff and everything. It's like, oh, I'm still pretty jacked up. Flip him over and that son of a gun started shooting off the mountain. It had just, while I was working on him, it had snowed enough just to put a slick layer on everything. He took off like the Jamaican bobsled team, and he's headed for this deadfall of down tin timber. And I'm like, oh, my God, if he gets in that, I'm done. There's, he, there's just no way to maneuver in there and get the rest of him cut up. He stopped right on the edge of it. And I went down there, and I had a bunch of paracords in my backpack, and I started tying him up to every sagebrush club. And it was, again, it was like that where I was working on him. So – Jumping to 2022, I hit a bull last year in the same area of rifle hunting and wounded him. Long story, but I was shooting uphill, things were happening fast, and I was just missing the range by just a touch, but shooting low on him. But I wounded him 
hard. I mean, we knew he was hurt. So we tracked him and he went up and down into that same basin. And I ended up killing him there. Did yeah, if you've seen that, it's, it's a crazy story. Well, anyway, I killed him there. Well, he stepped, he was laying there wounded and I snuck up on him and I had to wait for him to stand up. It was such a steep angle. I couldn't even see nothing, but just one ear and the antlers. And he finally stood up and I had a suppressor on. And I, I was like, I got to kill him there because if he goes any further down, it's just going to be uh, a horror story of trying to get him up deboned and work him. So I had a buddy with me. He was up above still looking for blood. We had split up. And I had that suppressor on. I just, he stood up and I hit him and racked, hit him and racked. And I hit him three times so fast. My buddy said, I thought you had a semi <laughs> but I was just trying to anchor in there. Elk are so tough and he had run a bit on adrenaline and he still fell off a ledge and got into a little clump of trees wedged up And it. We had to get a third guy the next day to help us even get him out of there to debone the other side. We only got half debone that night, but it was cool night. So it was lucky. But I took those guys in and as we're coming down the slope the next morning to bring out the next half of the bull. I picked up a, a leg off an elk, a mummified leg, and I said, you guys are not going to believe this, but that bull there died within 30 yards of my 2019 bull. So uh, so there's definitely a pattern. <laughs> they like going through that area. That's your honey hole. So that's And, and I think it, it is. I've killed three bulls in there. I could have killed a fourth one one year, but the snow was so deep, and it had, it had just beat me. And I wasn't – I'd already killed an archery bull. I had the freezer full, and I was just seeing raghorns. And so I passed that year. It's just like, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. Like right. <laughs> hard-headed. Hard-headed. Yeah, we'll go with hard-headed, not stupid. <laughs> so, so you talked there just briefly, you know, with, with the elevation and stuff like that. Have you done any or do you ever have any desire to uh, goats or sheep or anything like that? Oh, I'm, I'm building sheep points. <laughs> I just thought, I've only, I've killed a doll sheep in Alaska so, I mean, I got this experience. I photographed a lot of sheep over the years. I do wildlife photography, you know, off and on. Uh, my son and I have hiked in. We were, uh, two summers ago, we were in some really cool sheep country just over the mountain from us looking at sheep and some cliff-type settings. And really, where I do a lot of my shed elk antler hunting, it's, it's sheep country. I see sheep in there from time to time. So, so yes, but I, it's just another one of those things. If you want to do it, you've got to start building points when you're 12 years old or whenever they allow you. And even then, you might never draw, you know, such a limited deal. But I will kill a sheep in Wyoming almost for sure if I don't die before my uh, – because I should max out on points. Um, where am I at? I don't know if I need to do math. Five or six, seven years. I, I should have a uh, sheep killed there. I'm hoping to kill one in Montana yet. I live – just so if you, I talk about Montana, maybe, or have, maybe I have had, but I live only 15 minutes from Montana border. So I hunt Montana all the time. I'm, I'm in Montana scouting and running around as much as I am in Wyoming. So I'm hoping to kill one there, draw a tag there. And then I, I, I think I've got like two or three other States I'm building in. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother, uh, a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Hunting those that that's you know that's uh, another well I mean you, you I've listened to the podcast of guys that hunted that and they're talking about 
how dangerous and deadly it is, just the area that they're just, they're in and you know, how they have to take that into consideration, you know, when they're shooting and recovery and all of that, that's, I definitely have a, I've always had a desire for that and it's, it's growing and I'm, you know, building points, but hopefully fingers crossed at some point in the next 10 or 15 years, I hope to build it. And it's just like the elk hunting I've been talking about. Most of my elk areas where I'm rifle hunting, our archery hunting is a little different because you're always moving around, but the rifle areas I hunt, our Wyoming season is when the herds split. You'll see these big herds of 100 to 200 head of cows with young bulls in them. But those older bulls, they leave. They're just like, I'm done. I don't need this chaos. And a few younger bulls go with them. And they tend to go into some of the real, uh, at least my, where I'm hunting, into some of the real rough stuff that's, again, steep. They got pockets of grass. Elk need a lot of grass to survive. They're like a big cow. You know, they're a grazer, not a browser. And uh, but they, they just want nothing to do with people. And and if you're lucky, there will be no snow. Or if you're lucky, there is snow. It helps you tracking. But if there's no snow, they got to go to water. But the minute there's snow in the high country, then they can get really secluded because they've got their water source that's all around them. You know, they just go, you can see where they sit and munch on snow piles. You can see the, you know, clues right there in the snow. And, uh, but they, they, uh, they'll go into some places that'll make you think twice. And so I, I tell people, they always say, well, what should I get for a rifle? I got a, I'm singing to the six, five Creedmoor. Great caliber, nothing against it. But if you're going to go hunt elk, you carry the biggest thing you can and shoot the biggest grain bullet because you want them to drop, just drop right there. And I've had a lot of several elk, not a lot, but several elk stand there and eat three rounds out of a 300 wind mag of 180 to 200 grain bullets. And this is like, excuse, yeah, I usually see a 300. I'm, I'm trying to transition to a 300 PRC. I've, I've killed elk with that too, but. Uh, I'm sticking with 300 right now just because uh, Bergara, who I work with a lot, that's where they have their lightweight rifles in that caliber. And again, as I get older, I'm trying to make everything lightweight. Right. Yeah. And that's, I'm, I'm looking at uh, building a rifle as well or getting a rifle. And I'm between the 300 PRC and a 6.5 by 300 Weatherby mag. Those are the two that I'm kind of back and forth between. I, I like the I like the ability the, the the ability to customize more and and accessorize if you will the 300 PRC but the six five by 300 Weatherby mag is also I mean it's a Weatherby and I they make a dang good rifle and so oh, I don't know yeah. I don't know which way I well, Weatherby go. is actually in my backyard their right company. yeah um, so. I guess since I've got you on here, I mean, and I don't, don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you had to make a choice of those two, what, which one of those do you think you'd go with? I'd go with the 300 PRC. I, this sounds funny, but I almost shoot everything with the 300 wind mag. So you're only bumping it up a little with the 300 PRC, but, um, I hunt deer. I've, I've hunt pronghorns, just about everything with it. So, uh, and, and again, it's overkill, especially on probably deer and easily antelope. But if you're going to lose a little bit of meat as compared to losing an 
you know, a, a trophy or, or the, the entire animal. You're only, I mean, you know, on a good exit, you might have a chunk like that come out that you're going to have to get rid of. Um, that's not much to sacrifice for a good night's sleep instead of seeing a deer limp off into the uh, coolies and high grasslands of Western Kansas. Right. Um, with regards to glass, um, what, what type, what can you give our listeners out there any kind of, um, you know, insight onto choosing a size of glass, um, magnification, that type of stuff for going out West? I, I would almost totally recommend starting with a four or five power variable that goes up to, you know, depending on the company, 18 to even 20, but I, I like, you know, I like at least 16 to 18 for that. And I, and again, it's probably personal, but I like the sniper style hunting. So almost everything I shoot doesn't know I'm there. So I've, I've got a little bit of time to dial stuff up. And I, I really like having the fact that if the animal is out there feeding, sniffing some uh, does or cows or whatever, and you have the time to crank it up, it's stable. The more hide and fur that you're looking at, just boosts your confidence. And and then, you know, nowadays, almost all rifle scopes have a pretty good ballistic, different, again, ballistic trajectory reticles in them. So uh, crank that up, you know the hold over already, everything's set for you, whether you're clicking or the reticle moves, the six hour uh, Sierra six that I use in my guns, the reticle actually move in it, or you can set it up to have eight from 100 to 800 yards. And then you're, you know, it's your holdover mentally there. But, uh, I, I like a lot of fur in my scope. <laughs> I, I have to agree with you. I mean, I just, it, especially for me, as I've, as I've gotten older in my eyes, I start to see that I want more magnification you know, that, that ability to be able to magnify stuff. So that way I can see what it is that I'm, I'm shooting at better, I guess is definitely important to me. Um, what about, um, the need for, again, for people from that are from the Midwest or, or not used to hunting out West, how important is a spotting scope? I know the answer cause I've been out mule deer hunting, but can you, you know, it's, it's very important in those big open settings, when you're after a pronghorn or mule deer or prairie whitetails, I mean, I, I keep a spot and scope all the time. My truck just throw up on the window mount all the time. And then depending on if I'm really trophy hunting or if I'm just looking for, you know, a garden variety animal, that's when I decide what I'm going to throw, if I'm going to throw it in my pack. So what, what I always tell people is a spotting scope saves you uh, miles. So you can look at, they see a mule deer out there. And I usually carry a 10 power. It's my binocular choice, 10 power. A lot of times you can get a pretty good idea. But say it's a big two by two mule deer and, you know, you stand out there at 800 yards or 1,000 yards. Sometimes you can't even tell if he's fork. You know, he's got the front and back forks. We're a spotting scope, you throw that up there and you're on 60 power, you're going to be able to tell right away. Um, so, yes, spotting scope is very important. And especially 
if trophy is your game. Now, elk, depending on whether you're at, if you're in mostly timbered setting, then you're probably just, you know, weighing yourself, bogging yourself down with extra weight because a uh, 10 power binocular can cover what you need. And, uh, and going back to general unit hunting, uh, I have a rule. If it's a real low success, elk are being pursued hard in a general unit, I usually shoot the first branch antlered bull I see. So a spotting scope might not help. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're looking for success rate meat in the freezer as opposed to, um, you know, trophy. I, hunting. I love antlers. Yeah. But yeah. I like meat too in the freezer. Yeah. Cool. La- last year, uh, I killed my fourth consecutive with visits to this general unit area in Montana uh bull archery bull the three before that were all 300 to 345 class bulls in general unit which is to me is mind-boggling shocking that's it was just luck you know last year i killed a raghorn in there a legal raghorn and i felt pretty darn proud of myself for doing it so uh, so you got to kind of set it up in your mind what do you want but you don't want to be too choosy in a general unit if you studied the success rate and know what it can or cannot produce yeah well mark i greatly appreciate you being on here this has been a blast it's been a ton of fun talking and and in hearing stories and and swapping stories um i, I appreciate you coming on here and uh are you going to be back in kansas this fall what i'm planning on doing I, we didn't get into this but i love coyote hunting so I didn't draw a Kansas tag. I'm thinking of archery hunting Nebraska and then blowing over the border and go hunt coyotes for a little bit. So that's that's kind of my uh what I'm thinking right now, but I'm still putting this piece together. And we and I didn't get to share with your uh viewers and listeners too. You're talking about the cattle dog in the beginning. I for the last 10 years, well, no, it's actually 13 now. I've been uh border collie trained <laughs> they're training me but i i always i out hunting i take a border collie with me all the time yesterday i was in the mountains and we were doing a little shed hunting then even up in the mountains this time of year my border collie was out in front of me searching so uh i'm i'm all about the herding dogs they're very smart they pick up on everything i mean they my new one here he's just picked up on coyote hunting like there's no tomorrow he's just like Yes, let's go chase those coyotes. It it was the most crazy thing. The this 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 old timer says we're you know, we're we just got in walking a field and this old timer says the dog's name was Chico. Um and you may you may know, um, because you're from South Dakota, have you ever heard of Dustin Evans? Or his dad was oh, yeah. Kyle Evans. Okay. So Dustin is Dustin and I have been friends for ever, and that's actually that's how I met Ned um was uh, through Dustin. Um, but, uh, that was a previous life, so to say, but, um, yeah, so we go up there and, and, uh, Dustin's dad, Kyle was still alive and Kyle, that, that dog was, you know, he's a, he was, he was a pup. So he's probably a year and a half old or whatever. And so he's, we'd been hunting and he was ready to go. And we're all just sitting around, you know, after, after you, like you do after your hunt a field and talking, trying to get the game plan for the next one. And that dog was just, he was still very well mannered, but, but Kyle had a higher standard for him. And finally he says, Chico, go jump in the back of that blue truck. And Greg and I kind of looked at each other and I'll be darn that dog went over and jumped back to the blue truck. And Kyle looked at us and said, 
what you don't think that dog knows colors and greg and i didn't say anything because we you know we just met the guy you know four or five hours before maybe or whatever and he says chico jump in the back of that white truck and that oh, damn that dog jumped out and then went and got in the back of the white truck and greg and i just looked at each other and thought we're being had there's got to be something you know whatever well come to find out i ended up um spending a lot of time around that dog over the next you know well that dog's lifetime for another seven or eight years and um man that dog he knew left right you could tell him a series of i mean you could tell him you just talk to him like a person you um he would dustin would take him kyle ended up passing away um a couple of years later he he was a fourth of july event and he he hit a deer on his motorcycle and so then dustin that, yeah. yeah and so dustin got the dog and um you know dustin was on tour all over the country and so um we spent a lot of time together i'd go he'd come through town or i'd go visit him and take crash with him for a few days but you can just tell that dog you say chico i'm gonna take my boot off and throw this boot over here and then i'm gonna take the ball and i'm gonna throw the ball over here and then i want you to get the ball and once you pick the ball up roll over and then put the ball in the boot and then bring the boot over here and bark twice and that dog would he would do it exactly like you said i mean there i cannot tell you can you directions north south east west how he knew it i don't know um and i learned a lot about training dogs from kyle in that one trip um and then uh, kyle had had been down a couple of times since then you know we when i'd go visit dustin or dustin would come to town or whatever but uh, i learned a lot about training dogs through kyle as to just how smart dogs are and ca how much capability dogs have it you know it's it's crazy it was it was just unbelievable um and yeah it's I, I there's been 50 people if there's been one that have reached out to me over the years and that and chico probably passed away 15 years ago probably better and over the years people hey do you remember that dog that knew we we'd take him to the bar and give him five bucks and tell him to go order a beer and he'd jump up on the bar stool and he'd put the the five dollar bill out you know and on the bar and put his paw up and bark and you could tell him pick up the trash and he'd he'd pick up every single bottle cap shred of trash and put it in the trash can and i mean he was just the smartest dog in the whole world but that dog was amazing he was crazy but they're 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 a pretty cool dog for sure absolutely yeah you having one it definitely relived memories when i seen when i seen your dog uh, on your social media post of, of Chico. Chico was a, that was world-class dog. It was amazing for sure. But anyway, <clears throat> I'm going to wrap this up here. Mark, I greatly appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for uh, being on here. It's been a, a, a blast again. And for our listeners out there, um, if you enjoy the podcast, we greatly appreciate if you'd go and like and subscribe um, on whatever platform it is that you're, uh, you know, listening to us on here. Um, go to the social media pages and please like and uh, share them and uh, subscribe because we need all the help we can get to get this thing growing. Uh, as any of you out there know, when you're in this industry and guns are involved, we're not looked highly upon. And so they uh, do everything they can to make it difficult for us to get this um, content out where we're just trying to, you know, just talk about shooting, hunting and outdoor. Um, and we're not trying to to, to hurt anybody or any, or any animals. Um, we just enjoy this life and livelihood and, and, uh, when we want to share it with people. So, uh, and with regards to Mark, um, Mark, what's your social media pages? Uh, Instagram, Kaiser Mark, 
Facebook, Mark Kaiser, and they should go to the public, just put Mark Kaiser public because my private one or the one you know you start with has uh, maxed out with friends. And then Twitter again is uh, Mark Kaiser. So, yeah. Well, again, thank you so much, Mark, for being on here. And uh, I'm sure that we'll, uh, we'll run into one another at some point. I look forward to it. And uh, until next time, thanks listeners for tuning in. This is the Powder and String Outfitters podcast. Thanks for coming on and listening to us. Thank you. 